Warning, you are about to enter a world populated by the most appalling music ever made. Welcome to the search for the worst album of all time. This is Broken Records. But I hadn't been forgotten, I'd do. I've been married a long time ago. Same <laughs> A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. <laughs> You're beautiful. Hey, hey, I wanna be a rock star. Alright, hello and welcome to Broken Records episode 29, a new solo podcast. It's not even new, it's 29 episodes in from the Riot <laughs> Axe stable. My name is Stephen Hill, I'm joined as ever by Renfrey Deadman. Hello Renfrey. Hello me, hello Steve, hello. how are you? I'm alright thanks mate. I said a new solo podcast because I should say, even though this is episode 29 of our search for the worst record ever made, mm. actually this particular episode is the first episode we are recording as its own individual podcast as, as it's proper as, as, as intended own solo entity yes um yes. most of you will know by now that this used to be a regular section at the end of our weekly uh alternative rock review show riot act uh alternative rock alternative music music uh, yeah. music i should say really because yeah. it's not really rock anymore is it no. and um and uh yes and we've we've launched out into a brand new pastures and uh, are now doing these as their own individual separate thing and we have a hell of an amazing one to start with don't we we do we absolutely do so it's just worth saying i mean as i said this is for those of you who already know we have been trying to find the worst record ever made we have got a big collection of albums to be sorting through they have come from all kinds of places they're compiled from the reputation your suggestion critical standing or fan reaction that's basically how these records came into our list in the first place um you know we do have a list of rankings already which some of you will be familiar with but in case you have decided to start at the brand new number 29 i'm gonna run down our list as is so far starting from the 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 least worst and going all the way down to our number one spot the worst album ever this is a bit like he, so here's, far. here's here's what you previously could have heard on on Broken yes Records. Yeah. exactly so the best of the worst so far is self-portrait by bob dylan followed by lulu by lou reed and metallica lou reed again with metal machine music just below that liz fair's self-titled album lauren hill's mtv 2.0 unplugged dd king's standing in the spotlight william shatner's the transformed man Van Halen 3, Bush's Black and White Rainbows, Primitive Call by Mick Jagger, Results May Vary by Limp Biscuit, Pink Floyd with Umaguma, The Enemy with Streets in the Sky, One by Dirty Vegas, the self-titled album by Razorlight, Famous First Words by Viva Brother, Theory of a Dead Man's The Truth Is, Louis XIV's Slick Dogs and Ponies, The Cosmos Rocks by Queen and Paul Rogers, Richard Ashcroft's United Nations of Sound, the self-titled album by Eogan Owen Quigg of X Factor fame, Graveyard Classics Volume 2 by Six Feet Under, Blood, Sweat and Towers by The Towers of London, Corey Feldman's Angelic to the Core, Blood on the Dance Floor by Bad Blood, the self-titled debut album by Methods of Mayhem is number three. At number two, taking the silver medal so far, we have Double Wide by Uncle Cracker, and still at number one, the worst album that we have heard so far from this list is i'm not a fan but the kids like it by broken side uh we will be adding to that list and where will this particular record go i 
at present have no idea. Today, neither do I. We are going <laughs> Looking to at that list, about... I'm like, God, where's it going to go? <laughs> I have no idea. Sorry. We are going to be talking about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. No, not the <laughs> the genre popular culture defining Beatles album <laughs> from 1967, but rather the original soundtrack to the 1978 movie of the same name based on the album of the same name by the Beatles, released on the 17th of July, 1978. Now, Renfrey, you and I are both big fans of the Beatles, just like, mo- like most people. I don't think we're particularly unique in that. I think yeah. most people in the world really, really like the Beatles, right? Because mm. they're really good. And, you know, if you're going, hold on, I know the Beatles, there's Hard Day's Night and Help. There's Magical Mystery Tour. There was Yellow Submarine. I don't remember a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. Mm. Again, you would be correct mm-hmm. in remembering that correctly. This has really nothing to do with the Beatles whatsoever. But um, no, no. In, in really. fact, I think it's fair to say the Beatles kind of shunned it when they uh, when they uh, two of them eventually got around to watching it. And uh, yeah. the other two tried not to watch it, although there's some funny stuff about that later, but we'll get into that later. So I, I had no idea that this album or this movie existed until it just popped up on quite a few lists of the worst albums ever made that I managed to find. Did you even know that this was a thing? I was completely unaware that this existed 1978 that is uh seven years before i was born um and certainly this is a film i I mean we should probably say that we have also gone to the trouble of watching the entire film Mm. Uh, that's where shit gets special (laughs) it really does get special um and uh yeah no i had never heard of this at all um I suppose uh, a little bit of background is probably needed. So this is sort of a collaboration. Uh, The main collaborators are uh, Peter Frampton and Mm -hmm. the Bee Gees. It is, yes. The Bee Gees doing the Beatles. Um, And uh, we should probably point out at this point as well that um, both Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees, I think just prior to this film coming out, were at the height of their career. I think it's fair to say. So the Bee Gees had just won the Grammy for best pop vocal performance by a group for How Deep Is Your Love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the previous year in 1977, they'd had a successful film collaboration when they licensed a bunch of songs and some unreleased material for the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. So the Bee Gees were at possibly, I'm no expert on the Bee Gees, but possibly the highest point of their career. It's arguably... Certainly. I would say, yeah, I would say so yeah, quite comfortably. From, yeah, from my knowledge of the Bee Gees, it probably was 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 the height of their career. Peter Frampton, on the other hand, he'd he'd released uh, Frampton Comes Alive two years previous to this um, album, so that was a double live album, which remains one of the best selling live albums in the United States of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 1977, the previous year to the release of this film, he'd also released his fifth studio album titled, rather eyebrow raisingly, it must be said i'm in you 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> despite its uh, dubious title, it went to number two in the US on the Billboard album charts. Uh, it eventually went platinum in the US alone, and it featured Stevie Wonder, Richie Hayward, Mike Finnegan, Ringo Starr, and Mick Jagger as guest musicians. Although, as we're wow. about to discover, just because you have loads of amazing guests involved in something doesn't mean it's going to make it good. But having said that, uh, I think Peter Frampton was at the height of, well, certainly he was, his career was going very, very well at mm. this stage as well. So, yes. yes. Uh, we do actually have to go back a little bit further to the to, to really find the genesis of this project. Uh, in 1974, Robert Stigwood, uh, he of Greece, hair, Jesus Christ Superstar fame, he produced all of those um, massive yeah. Broadway musicals. He was um, also the Bee Gees manager. I should point out. He was yes, he was the Bee Gees amongst other yeah. artists. He was but the he Bee Gees did all manager. Those, yeah. Um he produced a musical uh, by the name of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the Road, which was a off-Broadway production. Um this is 1974, wasn't it? This is mm. 19 yeah, 1974 mm. and um d- due to just having the obtaining the rights to 29 Beatles songs essentially Mm. Um, uh, he approached a bloke called Henry Edwards to write the screenplay um, which is actually something that Henry Edwards had never done in his life ever he'd He'd never never written written, a screenplay never written a screenplay in his entire life and yet he was roped into writing this screenplay by Robert Stigwood um, with a load of songs from you know the, the biggest band of all time and well, I it's think, well. The movie is now beginning to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, I was going to say. That, <laughs> I was going to say um, before we kind of get into it. So, the, I mean, the the movie itself, um, as you say, the cast is the Bee Gees, Peter Frampton, Alice Cooper, Steve Martin, Aerosmith, Earth, Wind and Fire, Donald Pleasance, Frankie Howard, um, and a, and a ragtag bunch of the most <laughs> random kind of people you could put together in your entire life. Alice Cooper and Frankie Howard. There is, right, before we get too much into the movie, which is amazing, there is a scene where they just have big pictures of Frankie Howard, Alice Cooper and Steve Martin on the back wall as if to go, by the way, this film's really fucking mental. Like, the <laughs> fact that you would put those three together. By the way, you know, these three people who have nothing in common, they are all in this film together. Um, the studio has said that it expected a modern version of Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. Um, It it was basically um, a disaster. It currently has a score of 12% on film aggregated site Rotten Tomatoes and an average rating of 3.04 out of 10 from uh, 26 reviews on IMDb as well. So I don't think it's particularly highly thought of in um in the film world now that's true although i mean apologies if i'm jumping forward but it has it has we should probably mention that this film does have a hell of a cult following um that there are people who 
whether they genuinely adore it or they adore it in a in a ironic way or they adore it maybe i I think it's more like the way that people watch the room we've the room's come up on broken records before but tommy wiseau's infamous film you know terrible film Mm. which Mm -hmm. um in here in london uh there's the prince charles cinema and um they'll regularly put screenings of the room on and they'll they'll they sell out all the time because people just sort of quote along to the film and 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 uh all that sort of thing and it's become a massive kind of cult hit but specifically because it's so terrible i think howard the duck from 1986 is probably another example of a film which has become a bit of a cult because it's terrible and Mm. i think what's interesting about both of those films that you've just mentioned Mm. is that they're both much better than sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club i would agree with that yes um having seen all three i would agree with that um but i mentioned those two films just because that's the territory that we are occupying ourselves within at the moment it's that kind of thing we watched the whole film and i have to say Rimfrey, i've actually watched it twice now. (laughs) (laughs) i'm obsessed with this fucking film it is the funniest thing i've ever seen in my entire life my god um Rimfrey, because i don't know best how to, to say this um just tell the people who are listening what is the um explain if you can the plot <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> you explain, that is the hardest question explain, we've been working we've been working together for two and a half years just over two and a half years and that is the hardest question you have ever asked me in my in in the entire time we have been working together <laughs> how do i sum it up there's a i mean please feel free to interject if you feel like i'm missing anything there's a town called heartland yeah and um they their town hall also acts as a museum it's the town hall slash museum (laughs) uh you can understand why sergeant pepper was from there and his lonely hearts club yes sergeant pepper and his lonely hearts club band were a were a very famous uh band who would play to people uh this was in around the uh 1940s i think they they were so revered that there's one scene right at the beginning of the film where they just clop around a uh a, a fight in the middle of world war Two, and all the soldiers stop fighting because they're so mm-hmm. trans just enamored with the music uh like like something that would actually happen in real life um yeah. and um yes they were a magical magical band uh and they had magical magical musical instruments as well uh and these magical magical musical instruments i don't know why i'm saying magical twice every time um <laughs> but it's the sort of thing the film would do without explaining it um yeah. are secured in this museum come town hall this is we 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 are about three minutes into the film by, by the yes, way yes yes oh, there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot more to go um and then uh i'm i don't think i'm missing out anything when i say <laughs> the, the the instruments are stolen no way i'm missing out loads aren't i well all right let me try and take it over then yeah. so sergeant pepper dies after the war of old age but he was in world war one and two actually by the way he stopped world war one and two with his lonely hearts club band so they put all the stuff in a museum and some kids just some kids uh who are the bgs who play um mark david and bob henderson are kind of members of the reformed sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band even though they don't appear to be related to them and billy shears 
played by Peter Frampton. They are the band, and they start playing, and then BD, uh, as played by Donald Pleasance, is um, a big record executive, and he sends. For he's the he's the, record, he's the record executive of Big Deal Records, hence <laughs> Big D. <laughs> yeah. And he looks a bit like I said this yesterday. He doesn't look like Donald Pleasance. He looks like the bloke who goes, "No, and you can't." Alan <laughs> 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 Partridge, the South African bloke. He, he looks just like. <laughs> anyway, he wants to sign. <laughs> he wants to sign Sergeant Pepper's band, so he calls for them, and they go, and they they go to the they go to Hollywood, company. they go to Hollywood, and they yep. sign the deal, and then while they're away <laughs> signing the deal, Frankie Howard turns up and steals the stuff. Uh, you don't really know why, and then yes. he gives them to a group of people. Again, we don't know why. We we and should then... say Frankie Howard is playing uh, Mean Mr. Mustard. Uh, uh, any Beatles fans? Very- very well, subtly as well. Yeah. <laughs> Very subtle performance from Frankie Howard. Uh, any Beatles fans will realise what is happening here. It's just like any jukebox musical, really. It's like, here's the title of a song or here's something. How do we crowbar this into a plot? Yeah. And it's one of the worst. I mean, jukebox musicals are not anything that I think either of us are particularly interested in. But this is no. one of the worst examples of a abhorrent subgenre <laughs> that I've ever, well, ever seen. We, I, I, I remember when I was eight going to see Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. And yeah. even at eight, I walked out and I went, it's not much plot in that <laughs> film, is there? And it's like fucking Inception compared to this. <laughs> it's nothing to do with nothing is to do with anything at all uh so basically the instruments get stolen and they get given to an evil band uh, who were aerosmith who are the, meant to be kiss yeah what are they called again fvb yeah they're the yeah the future villain band the future the villain band of course yes <laughs> future uh, villain band. <laughs> and we should say, we should say because the musical instruments have magical properties that is what's keeping the town that's what's keeping the town of heartland this lovely beautific kind mm. of white picket fence american americana ideal place but as soon as the instruments are stolen heartland goes into disarray basically there's just a load of litter all over the place <laughs> That's yeah. how they show, oh, people are wearing slightly grubbier clothes yeah, that's pretty much it. yeah. Uh, and then so the band go and steal the stuff back but while they're there strawberry fields who is uh peter frampton's girlfriend um mm. quite arrogantly says that she's forever she sings a song strawberry fields forever she does quite, arro- quite arrogant of her isn't it to be like <laughs> really strawberry arrogant. Stra- it's like me going stephen hill forever <laughs> imagine me singing me singing that you go you're a very arrogant man um so she's quite arrogant and she dies by falling about three foot uh, and off of a she's tied up and the thing she's tied to falls down some stairs which is about two three foot high and she dies yeah which i don't think would kill her to be perfect i think yeah. she had a pre-existing condition to be perfect. we should probably point out this is during the fight with aerosmith this is where <laughs> yeah. peter frampton and steven tyler are i, I know yeah. i know this i know we are kind of cocking this up in terms of like how much of a mess we're making this sound but to be honest we're not cocking it up because this is how messy the film is if you think our synopsis oh. is messy <laughs> try watching and the then, film and then even though everything's been quite silly and over the top this girl dies and Peter Frampton decides to kill himself 
which we shouldn't anyway, laugh about, really. <laughs> but it's just not really in keeping with the general aesthetic, like, kind of mood of the film at all. Peter well, Frampton goes, my girlfriend's dead. I'm going to kill myself. And then, for no reason, the weather vane of Sergeant Pepper turns into Billy Preston, who basically brings her back to life and makes everything good again. For no, Again, for absolutely no reason. And then... Everyone who was ever famous in the 70s, fucking Tina Turner, <laughs> Dr. John, Dame Edna Everidge, Rotel and Emu, Keith Chegwin, <laughs> the Green Cross Code Man, <laughs> and th- that guy stood in the water in the dark <laughs> river bit and Sooty all sing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band At reprise yeah. and no one knows the words or the dance routine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've probably missed out a few details there. We've missed out um, Maxwell Silverhammer, Steve Martin as uh, as yeah. uh, that character and uh, stuff like that. But but that is a very very basic overview of what the plot is to this film. Um, it is balmy, as you kind of uh, hinted at there. The tone of the film is all over the place because in in parts, it, it there's bits of it where it really feels like a kids film. You know, it really like it's really yeah. brightly coloured costumes, and there's a lot of like Frankie Howard doing like kind of Scooby Doo baddie. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, and and literally like literally <laughs> shaking shaking his fist at the sky. Like it's so <laughs> pantomime the entire thing. But then when you have stuff like Peter Frampton's <laughs> character going to commit suicide and then th- there's also a scene where when they initially go to la um they have this big dinner with all these women <laughs> who are draping themselves around them it's very uh <laughs> it's pretty misogynist by today's standards um and they're drinking out of these wine glasses which are like the size of their heads and yeah. then um uh bd uh the the record executive person puts drugs in their in in yeah. their in their wine glasses and there's this absolutely <laughs> bonkers drug fueled scene that well uh, I mean the whole thing is everyone involved in this did a line of coke as long as the Great Wall of China before <laughs> they started feeling it, filming this because it is the most coked up mess of anything i I mean the thing is is there is a great tradition of mad 70s films right from like the rocky horror picture show which i absolutely i i love the rocky horror picture show it's yeah, comfortably it's my my favorite musical of all time i think it's brilliant and it's deliberately kitsch and camp and a mess and it's made to look silly and you kind of got i don't mind grease and then you've got something like tommy the who's tommy mm. which is bizarre and utterly nightmarish but all of those songs were written for that particular musical with those songs were written to tell that narrative to tell mm. that story mm. now as we sort of pointed out these songs of the beatles are used to kind of string together some plot that isn't really there i mean stuff like frankie howard's we like it is that joe pesci's character in moonwalker i want kids to take drugs i want kids to take drugs. what why yeah. why do you want kids to take drugs don't just sell your drugs and well he's frankie he's howard's dry- frankie howard's like <laughs> frankie howard's computer just keeps going we hate love we love money and it's like right good go and why? make some money yeah there. He's, dri- he's driving around a van 
uh, well, a van, a, a truck type thing, which is actually quite a cool, like it's quite a cool truck. I wouldn't mind owning that. Um, yeah. But it has an onboard computer, and my goodness me, like very seventies onboard computer, which basically keeps telling him <laughs> him what to do. Uh, mm-hmm. It also has these two robots <laughs> on board, which is one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. It's BDSM just BDSM leather clad robots. Yeah. Yes, it's. It's just two people dressed up in in black vinyl, I think it is. I'm not a expert on the BDSM scene. Um, with what appears to be silly string coming out of their heads to signify hair. Um, and in a way, those two actors are the people who get away with this film the most because at least their their faces are completely hidden, uh, so they don't <laughs> they don't have to live with it's the actually shame Paul and Ringo underneath those two. <laughs> um. But they, you know, the way that they move, I mean, they both do awful robot dance (laughs) moves. There is an absolutely, there is a very inappropriate scene, in my opinion, where the two robots are giving Frankie Howard's uh, character a massage, which is like... I mean, you know, they 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 have crowbar. I think I think they managed to hire Frankie Howard, and then went, oh, okay, well, let's crowbar some carry on esque moments into it. But when so so you've got this weird mix of like carry on, some really weird cartoony kids film, and then you've got all the excess of the drugs and the the you know alcohol and 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 peter frampton's character billy committing suicide and it's such a weird (laughs) mess of tone and i I, I, it's 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 an astonishing film (laughs) it really is but not in a good way i (laughs) it is astonishing i I love it so much it's the funny (laughs) every single frame is just drenched with ineptitude and like the Bee Gees, right? The Bee Gees just look surprised that whatever happens, they look like their characters just look yeah. completely flummoxed by the whole. There's a bit where they invite some people to come and <laughs> invite Earth, Wind, and Fire to come and play in the town, and they sit in the front row. And when Earth, Wind, and Fire come on, they just go, oh, "I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe the band that we booked are here and they're playing music." <laughs> so like, you book them. They get to the car. They see the car, and they're like, "I can't! It's a! I can't believe it! It's a car!" And when the Lucy, Lucy in the sky, the Lucy in the diamonds yes. singing "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," I particularly like the addition. There's so much like extraneous shit that the, the point, that, like why the Beatles were a better band at writing songs than these people, than all of these people involved in this. It's a bit in Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. We're talking about Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, no. But but they weren't talking about Lucy. <laughs> they weren't even talking about someone called Lucy. They were talking about drugs, and you fucked it up completely, you stupid idiots. But the Bee Gees just look so. <laughs> they look so non Like, oh my god, four girls are singing a song. I can't believe it. Oh look, a swimming pool. I can't believe it. Oh look, a car. Oh look, a drum kit. Oh, <laughs> like the whole film. They just cannot believe any. They just that you could change the name of this song to "The Bee Gees Look Confused," and it would. <laughs> and and for to be fair, they should be confused. It's really really confusing as a film. But fucking hell, I, I. I loved how un- 
unbearably bad it was. It, it, it was it, just it is incredible how it's incredible how bad it is. Yeah, it's it is genuinely it's it's a it's a work of art as to how <laughs> atrocious this film is. Everyone, the ineptitude of everyone involved in this film mm. is staggering. Rimfrey. We've had it's been really interesting since we've been doing this broken records. Um, since we've been doing this i've been talking a lot about um objectivity and subjectivity in art and there's this kind of um rhetoric that art is subjective and yada 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 and doing this broken record stuff has made me realize that that is not well it is true that subject there is subjectivity in art but there is also objectivity as well um and a, a few people have kind of got quite um quite irate about that me saying that something is objectively good or objectively bad believe me Watch this film and you will discover that there is definitely objectively bad things out there. That is just, I mean, this is irrefutable proof of that fact as far as I'm concerned. Um, But then it's so enjoyable as well, isn't it? So can it really be bad? When it feels so good, Renfrey. But when you it know, feels so good to watch I, it. Can but it be I think, that bad? I think that's the point. Just because something's objectively bad doesn't mean you can't get enjoyment out of it. But I suppose that's where the term guilty pleasure comes from, or a cult movie, or whatever. That that's how we try to kind of um, uh, how we try to to you know work work. That's how we try to explain it to ourselves. Um, and there's nothing wrong with getting pleasure out of something that is objectively bad. But this is objectively bad. It's just not. It's there's no contest. Having said that, I mean before the film's release, Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees announced there is no such thing as the Beatles now. They don't exist as a band and never perform Sgt. Pepper live in any case. When ours comes out, it will be, in effect, as if theirs never existed. <laughs> now <laughs> that I don't need to reveal to you, ladies and gentlemen, did not happen. Um, and Robin Gibb, Robin Gibb and his brothers in the Bee Gees changed their tune pretty quickly. <laughs> however, uh, they cited their involvement with this film for their declining popularity. Some of the most vicious criticism of the soundtrack was levelled at them, and it hurt to be labelled Beatles imitators, a tag that had been with them since the 1960s. At the time, they were also battling drug addiction, which is not a surprise (laughs) when you watch this film, and the environment of making the film and its soundtrack did not help. Morris Gibb was shocked to see crew members carrying around bags of cocaine. Robin Gibb spent much of this period unable to sleep without taking barbiturates. The Bee Gees wow. tried to get dropped from the film two weeks into production. Not only that, but when the Bee Gees regained control of their back catalogue, the soundtrack album to this film was the only album that they did not include. I wonder, and this is speculation now from this point, but I wonder if a large part of the reason, there's several reasons why you'd want to regain control of your back catalogue, but I wonder if one of the reasons why the Bee Gees wanted to regain their back catalogue is so that they could just pretend that this thing never existed. Because if you have control of your back catalogue, you need to go per- to, to the Bee Gees to have permission to put this out there now and i i wonder if that's why we'd never heard of this before we mm. never heard that this film because as, as soon as they regained that control they're like right we're just holding on to this and let's just pretend it doesn't happen but of course with the internet uh <laughs> and everything it's also it's also two pound on discogs the vinyl so i'm gonna buy the vinyl. <laughs> um 
it's also been re-released on blu-ray i'll be buying that as well that's stunning isn't it i was yeah. shocked that it's been uh, re-released on blu-ray but it has yeah yeah um i mean you know obviously we are meant to be talking about the album more than the film but we watched the film i mean i have to say i listened to the album and i was like well, some of this is all right and some of this is just nonsense but mm. having watched the film it, it, kind of it's all nonsense now i mean there's stuff in the soundtrack but anyway but i think we're getting i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there um george I still, martin i still feel like there's a lot to talk about with the oh, film to yeah. be honest <laughs> george martin was drafted in to produce the varying groups of musicians who were in this to to create a coherent beatles tribute album um uh, he was initially quite sceptical. I wonder why. Mm. But his wife suggested that he took the job as she thought there might not be another producer who would treat the material with the same level of respect as George Martin did. Although I think, well, he massively came to regret that decision. Yeah. Like he said, both the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton were incredibly suspicious of each other both kind of working together they wondered how they'd be able to make their each other's music work alongside their others as well there was a lot of tensions from the beginning by the sounds of things yeah Yeah. letting the likes of we talked about frankie howard but letting the likes of paul nicholas from 80 sitcom just good friends and george burns like Mm. 80 year old new york old man jewish stand-up comic george burns loose on such revered classic material how could that ever have been considered a good idea idea. i I just Mm. do not i do not understand how anyone thought it was a good idea i mean one of the ones that i did like one of the bits i did i said to you yesterday one of the bits i did like on it when i listened to the soundtrack was billy preston doing get back um everything taken literally like literally peter frampton when it says get back he's halfway jumping to his suicide Mm, and billy preston shoots him with a very realistic looking laser gun and (laughs) i think it comes out of his finger doesn't it i think he just points at him and the laser just comes out his finger yeah like again like the laser gun from the rocky horror picture show but i mean it, it fucking looks like avatar in comparison to this piece of shit (laughs) 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 Peter Frampton just like they rewind him back up onto the roof again and you know Billy Preston performed on the original Beatles version of that song and I was like you know this is a pretty good version Billy Preston's treating it with respect and then you see him (laughs) on a wire in a lame gold suit (laughs) like you've managed during disco you've managed to get the only black man in the world who couldn't dance right his dancing is so good it's like my dad he's like my dad walking over hot coals <laughs> is a better dancer than Peter Frampton. <laughs> Peter Frampton, Billy Preston, and Peter Frampton. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. It is so, it is so funny. This film is so funny. Um, oh my God. I just, I, that's probably something we should mention though. Like, so a lot of like very slowly moving onto the soundtrack um essentially the idea behind this because it was the height of disco the height of soul the height of funk um 
some of the covers on this soundtrack album are played relatively straight and it's songs taken from predominantly it's songs taken from sergeant pepper but also abbey road as well which Mm -hmm. just happened to be my two favorite beatles albums so it was very difficult listening to this as, as some of this material be murdered um there's also one song each from rubber soul revolver magical mystery tour and let it be um and uh i think that's the same as as what's in the broadway adaption in 1974 just one quick point on that it it made me wonder if maybe if this was 1974 that it was on broadway i wonder if this was one of the first jukebox musicals um i mean i'm no expert on jukebox musicals or or musicals at all really so i'm not going to say that as an absolute standalone fact if anyone does know of any ones before then um i did a quick bit of research on it and there was talk about the beggars opera and stuff like that but that's not a jukebox musical in the traditional sense it's not in the sense that we think of it as in uh pop bands uh music being used in musicals so i don't know if i don't know that or not so so i suppose one thing you can say for this is that it potentially created a genre a genre which i think is absolutely hideous and terrible (laughs) it's like the who created the atomic bomb Uh, (laughs) what have i I done (laughs) i was just pointing it out i'm merely pointing it out you know i mean i think i think i mean i this is possibly uh, i mean I don't find "We Will Rock You" funny. No, just, just rubbish. No, I, Do you know I, what I mean, agree. just absolutely rubbish. Or at least this is really, really funny. But those things are. I mean, I haven't obviously haven't seen "American Idiot," the Green Day musical. I've not seen "Our House," the Madness musical. People seem to like Jersey Boys, and there have been a mm. few. <clears throat> I saw the Beatles one. Uh, that is just people playing Beatles songs. It's not got is any that, kind of is that narrative. Backbeat? No, no, no. But I did see no, Backbeat. That's the a film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I did see there was Get a theatre production of Backbeat, which was really quite good, actually. But that was just that was a play, you know. That was yeah, about right, um, right, right. Stuart, uh, Stuart Sutcliffe. Just and... doing, just doing a mega, mega quick um, uh, Google on jukebox musicals. I mean, you know, I don't think this is a definitive list at all. But there's a list of stage jukebox musicals, and they start in 1976 with a with a musical called bubbling brown sugar duke ellington count basie cab calloway mm. so based on the music of those there's one in 1977 uh, yeah yeah, mm. yeah? so there's one in, one in 1977 called elvis which is based on elvis presley songs as you would imagine and then 1978 ain't misbehaving which is based on the music of fats waller so mm-hmm. you know um i mean sergeant pepper isn't even mentioned there but but it but on Broadway or off Broadway, I should say, it was um, two years before the first one that's even mentioned on the Wikipedia entry. So who knows? And I mean, looking down the list, it is stunning to see how uh, they've become so much more of a big deal. There's only three in the 70s. There's around eight in the 80s, like four or five in the 90s. And then in the 2000s, it it jumps right up to 30 or so. And then in the 2010s, there's a good 50 or so, because for some reason... I say for some reason these things have become absolutely massive. I mean, because of money, basically, isn't it? But um, yeah, um, oh can't wait goodness. to see the, the Ed Sheeran musical when that comes out. That'll be a laugh, <laughs> isn't it? it it looks as if there are five being made this year alone. 
MJ the musical. That's good timing, isn't it, for Michael Jackson? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Marilyn Manson. Yeah, Suck, quite. Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe the musical. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shemima be- Begum story. And... My, be- my best friend's wedding, which is based on the film of the oh, same God. name, with Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Once Upon a One More Time with Britney Spears. <laughs> oh. uh, what's new, Pussycat? Tom Jones and the Osmonds. The Osmonds. So, and that's all just this year alone. So anyway, so I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I thought that was at least something worth vaguely uh, uh, talking about. The tagline of the film is a splendid time is guaranteed for all. Uh, some, <laughs> something that critics disagreed with uh, and I disagree with. Uh, I'm not sure if you disagree or not, but I certainly disagree. Um, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the film, though, has no, it? No, no. I mean, <laughs> that's the tagline. Like, oh, yeah, about the new stuff alone film cliffhanger what's the tagline you'll really like this film <laughs> cliffhanger <laughs> yeah um many actors yeah, like <laughs> many <laughs> actors like actresses and singers turned down roles in the film including olivia newton john donna summer elton john Barry Manilow, Bob Hope, Doris Day and Rock Hudson all very very smart people i would say and kiss and Kiss, yes, yes, that's true. Kiss were originally um, uh, touted as playing the oh future villain band. What are they bloody yeah. called? Is that it? The FDB. That's what they're called. Yeah. Band. Yeah. Um, and so, as I was, I was, I was started saying before, a lot of the songs on this record, some of them are quite straight, but a lot of them have been infused with a disco or a glam or a soul uh, flavor let's say um mm. and goodness me i mean <laughs> it <laughs> oh it, it, like i don't know hearing here comes the sun beautiful song here comes the sun little darling with a mm. bopping bass line which is all over the fretboard it sounds like <laughs> fleas gone to town on on the or or it is it's so inappropriate to the song but they've just done it because it's like well this is what's big at the moment but i can't think of an era of music which is less appropriate for infusing into the beatles songs it would kind of like be i mean dubstep a, mob, a dubstep maybe yeah a modern equivalent if you asked a bunch of soundcloud rappers to cover beatles songs today is it's kind of like the equivalent of what this would be at that time it's just such a terrible terrible idea but clearly you know robert stickwood who i think is the main protagonist in like putting this together the producer and manager of the beatles he appears to be uh, uh, he'd had a lot of success with greece Mm-hmm. um and Which you can was absolutely massive at that yeah point as well. yeah yeah and you can see a th- you can see a through line from greece Definitely. to this yeah. uh i i do get it funnily enough another little nice little fact i picked up the director of this film michael schultz um thought that this was a really bad idea this sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band film however the last time that robert stigwood had come to schultz with an idea for a film was greece which he also believed was not a good idea and turned it down of course greece became a major success so not trusting his instincts this time around because he got it wrong last time he accepted the job so 
poor Michael Schultz. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> what a, but yeah, there you go. Uh, but I thought that was quite an interesting little uh, factoid. Um, we should probably go into, I mean, so basically um, the movie's hilarious, but terrible. Um, it was a disaster. Um, and the album itself, I mean, this is actually, this is much like the Beatles album of the same name Renfrey this did make history uh, but while the Beatles original Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album made history due to the fact that it basically rewrote the rule book for what an album could be the soundtrack is most known for being the first ever album apparently to go return platinum with over four million copies taken off the shelves and sent back to distributors hundreds of thousands of copies being destroyed uh, by the label that released it RSO who nearly went bankrupt and as you rightly said the Beatles almost completely destroyed the popularity they rode high on both kind of commercially and critically on the back of Saturday Night Fever so um I've got a few of the reviews of the record rather than the actual film because that's what we normally do Hmm. Rolling Stones album gave the album a zero out of five score calling it an utter travesty earth wind and fire turn impassable performances but there's no excuse for being involved with this holocaust easily the worst album of any notoriety in this book wow um (laughs) all music's given it one star saying like the album itself the soundtrack uh, to the 1978 film Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a legend in its own right where the Beatles album was a groundbreaking moment in pop music the Robert Stigwood film was an unmitigated disaster and embarrassment not only to the Beatles but to everyone involved in the production nevertheless as the years passed and 70s nostalgia grew certain kitsch fanatics revealed an affection for the debacle a few tr- performers tried their best witness earth wind and fires got to get you into my life Aerosmiths come together and Billy Preston's get back but there's no erasing the fact that this is an absolute atrocious record one that was simply beyond saving there's really no excuse for such a mind-boggling mismatch as george burns is fixing a hole alice cooper's because steve martin's maxwell silverhammer or all of the endless awkward numbers from the bgs peter frampton and frankie howard it's so bad it's not even that camp and our old mate robert christagoo uh, gave it a D plus marking, a pretty rare, decent week for Robert Christogu, given mm. um, the cars, Peter Gabriel, Tom Petty, and Kraftwerk all Bs and above. Mm. But he says in his D plus marking for this album, at first I felt relatively positive about this project. I'm not a religious man. I liked the Aerosmith and Earth, Earth Wind and Fire cuts on the radio, and I figured the Bee Gees qualified as Ertz's Beatles if anyone did. Well, let's hope clones aren't like this. From the song selection, you wouldn't even know the originals were once a rock and roll band. Most of the arrangements are lifted whole without benefit of vocal presence. Maybe Morris should try hormones. That's nice. Or rhythmic integrity. Can't we get a little bit of that disco feel in there, George? And what reinterpretations there are are unworthy of Mike Douglas. George Burns, I can forgive. Even Peter Frampton. But not Diane Steinberg, Sandy Farina, Frankie Howard. I never thought Alice Cooper would stoop to a Paul Williams imitation. I never thought Steve Martin would do a nerd imitation. Get back, all of you. Back, I say. Um, <laughs> You haven't mentioned my favourite review, I don't think. Um, The Dave Marsh one from the Rolling Stone record guide. Well, you mentioned um, him, but um, my favourite quote uh, from that, he says, um, two million people bought this album, which proves that P.T. Barnum was right and that euthanasia may have untapped possibilities. (laughs) Nice, nice, yeah. (laughs) Um, Which sounds like something you would say. I know, yeah, it does. Uh, It went in in the billboard top 200 number seven and peaked 
Uh, for six weeks, it's spent at number five. The aforementioned Earth, Wind, and Fire's version of Gotta Get You Into My Life sold a million copies, and Aerosmith managed to break into the top 40 with their version of Come Together. Although, like I say, due to the bad reviews for both the film and the album meant that it dropped off the radio and the charts very, very quickly, and the amount of sales in the album meant that the film, which didn't make its money back in theatres, just about turned a profit overall. Mm. Um, I did get so some it, quotes from from uh, movie reviews whilst you were reading those out. If you just, I can just do a couple very yep. quickly. Um, Casey Summers from the Washington Post says Frampton sings the Beatles songs as they've never been sung before. It says in the press release. Well, yes, they have been, as a matter of fact, and better. Uh, David Aldrich from the Radio Times: A daft attempt to further conceptualise the classic Beatles album by linking its songs via a contrived connective storyline. The attempt fails miserably. Although he did give it two out five which is stunning uh, scott nash from three movie buffs a laughably bad movie um pathetic acting and a scattershot plot sink this pitiful attempt by producer robert stickwood to turn the landmark beatles album sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band into an engaging film um from variety a totally bubblegum and cotton candy melange of garish fantasy and narcissism jennifer selway from uh time out said this crass moral pantomime is plain embarrassing i think that gives you uh, uh, an idea of the gist um in terms of the beatles as well as i sort of already mentioned paul mccartney and ringo Starr both attended the premiere of this film and they've mm-hmm. both subsequently distanced themselves from it John Lennon and George Harrison refused to see it. Although in a strange way, John Lennon was sort of forced to watch it. As it was the in-flight entertainment during a Pan Am flight he was on from Rome to New York on February the 18th, 1979. I mean, I'll tell you what. Oh, but there's more. There's more. Due to a snowstorm which delayed their landing... The flight attendants decided to screen the film twice during the flight, so he was sort of forced to watch it twice in the space of seven or eight hours. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, all the shit about Catcher in the Rye, I'm not surprised Mark Chapman saw this and went, nah, <laughs> anyone who's got anything to do with this. <laughs> oh, dear. I yeah, mean, yeah. It, it is... Um, it is bad this it is mm. bad and the thing about it is is when i listened to the record at first i was like you know we've spoken about people covering the beatles before i mean it's funny actually just today i saw somebody say i prefer guns and roses version of live and let die to the they actually said the beatles version obviously it's the the wings Paul and wings yeah, yeah <clears throat> version but somebody said every cover of a Beatles song is better than the Beatles original. That is some, what somebody, a human being with a with a, presumably with a brain, not a massive one, but with a brain, tweeted that. Now we've spoken. I'm currently wearing a Susie and the Banshees t-shirt, actually, Rimfrey and Susie mm. and the Banshees are one of the very, 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 very few artists that I would go. You've done a cover of a Beatles song which is better than the original. Ella Fitzgerald's cover of Savoy Truffle, we discussed, is better than the original. So it's not impossible to do songs better than the original Beatles you know like although people some people say oh, it's scandalous and they were a bit like no there are a few yeah there, there are, are a few, few. Yeah, there yeah. are definitely a, there are definitely a few but none of them are on here no no <laughs> Uh, none, none of them are on here at no. all. Who, whoever uh, that person was who said that um, uh, covers of the Beatles are always better. He was. They never, were saying they were always better. Was he? Every, every single time a Beatles song has been covered, and then the only, the only example they could give was Ella Fitzgerald. 
And I was like, well, what about Godhead and Spineshank? Yeah, cool, quite, yeah. And all of this record, I would say. Um, and all of this record. I actually did link the Steve Martin, Maxwell Silver Hammer and go, you think this is better than the original? Now, the funny thing about it is, is that, I mean, you know, a song like Maxwell Silver Hammer, um, a song like Mean Mr. Mustard or When mm. I'm 64, mm. the Beatles did write these songs. Like, you know, the Beatles wrote some fairly silly songs. And yeah. so they're going to inspire, I guess, some fairly silly cover versions of it. I think it's when you get some of their really, really great material, which gets turned into just... I mean, one of my favourite Beatles songs is I Want You, She's So Heavy, which mm. Donald Pleasant's William Shatner's his way through mm. in the most hilarious way. And again, that disco, like, she's so heavy, heavy, yeah. like chipmunk Bee Gees <laughs> shit that they do. I mean, <laughs> you know, something like A They're Day also- in the Life. Is the, so is too good to ruin. I think a day in a life is 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 actually probably too good to be completely ruined. It, it, uh, even yeah, a day in the life is my favourite Beatles song, and um, even when that came in, I think that song is just so brilliant. And like, thankfully, it's a relatively straight cover of a day in the life ish. Mm. Um, I mean, I I didn't like what they were doing to it, but the the songwriting below it shines through so much that you know i can i was still kind of singing along to it um i think you mentioned the special that we did on our on our other podcast right uh on our main podcast um about uh the white album um and we did mention on there that some of the because the white album is chock full of those silly songs that you were talking about when i'm 64 mean mr mustard etc etc but the, the the manner in which the beatles did them they kind of um made songs which you know could be seen as very throwaway in the hands of anyone else they made them seem far more an essential part of the album i mean mm. If you take Maxwell's Silver Hammer out of Abbey Road, um, mm. if you take it out of the context of the rest of the album, there's nothing particularly... I wouldn't say it's a great Beatles song or anything like that. But within the context of... If I'm listening to Abbey Road and you suddenly mm. took it out, I wouldn't want to hear Abbey Road without that cut. It's only like a minute and a half or something like that. It's a bit longer than that, I think. Yeah. But, you know, like, they had quite... There was a weird sort of... Um, chemistry and magic about the way that they could do those silly songs without them seeming utterly silly and ridiculous and preposterous and wacky um there's a subtlety there but there's nothing subtle about the way that frankie howard um does when i'm 64 you know mean old man oh no yes I mean, he literally does do that. He does. I'm a mean old man. Oh, will you still need me? Will you still, will you still feed me when I'm 64? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, I literally. Mean, um, literally does do that. He also, goes on, he also goes on about how he's a dirty old man as well, yeah. which is just oh, so dirt, uncomfortable. Dirty old man. <laughs> so uncomfortable. <laughs> It's it's just oh it it's really yes. difficult it's difficult to watch uh, in places. Um, there's yeah there's some absolutely atrocious atrocious stuff on here. Uh, Alice Cooper 
comes in and does believe um which i think is a complete and utter shit show i don't think it's alice's fault to be fair um apparently it's a bit bit his fault (laughs) do you think so well well, okay so apparently initially he came in and tried to um basically do an impression of john lennon and do it like that and george martin Mm -hmm. actually said sing it as alice would sing it and um i actually think that was a bad note because alice cooper singing that song it just does it's the wrong person attached to the song you know yeah um which is why i say i don't think it's strictly his fault um another interesting fact alice cooper uh was actually in rehab when they were um uh, recording this film and he not was a- the place to be if you're trying to not take drugs <laughs> <laughs> he yeah well exactly he was granted a three-day leave from a new york city rehab facility which he checked himself into uh himself to record this song and do the scenes uh and film the scenes they had in the film i mean he really shouldn't have bothered <laughs> because you know i mean it's really oh poor alice cooper i mean there's a fight scene where he's punched and then he turns around 360 degrees, falls, and then his face falls flat into a pie, you know, which is one of the sort of surreal kind of kiddie comic bits. And then, you know, five minutes later, you've got loads of people taking drugs or something. And it's just like, where is the tone of this film? It is all over the fucking place. Um, I, absolutely dreadful. Um, one thing that the film did help me with in terms of making sense there's a few moments on the film where a a horrible shitty vocoder is used why on earth i just didn't understand at all before i watched the film why that hideous vocoder was being uh used on she's leaving home or I think it's used a bit on Mean Mr. Mustard as well. It turns... <laughs> oh yes, the mean old man, yes. <laughs> uh, it, so honestly, it honestly has to be heard to be believed. When you see it in the context of the film, it's because those are the robots that are singing. Those, yeah. those, those poor, poor, poor actors who were uh, dressed up in that <laughs> horrible S&M vinyl stuff. Um, and it just sounds awful. Absolutely awful. Um I forgot to mention this. We've talked about Frank. I'm sorry. There are so many amazing, interesting facts and tidbits about this film. Uh, Do you know who was originally, who they originally wanted to cast in the Frankie Howard uh, role, Steve? No, I don't know. Oliver Reed. (laughs) How do you get from Oliver Reed to Frankie fucking Howard? Isn't that insane? It's insane. It's insane. That is mental. That is fucking mental. Yeah. How many people did they must have asked everyone? Yeah, I'm they busy, were... mate. I'm bu- I mean, Frankie, Frankie Howard, there was a scene. I think my favourite my favorite frame of the entire film is at the end when they're doing the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band finale with fucking, you know, Chris Tarrant and every- <laughs> everyone. <laughs> just every single person. And I've apparently they just asked these people who weren't in the film. Dame Edna Everidge is not, I'm not even joking. Dame Edna Everidge is actually, is actually there actually in, in, film, in, in the film. Tina Turner actually in the film. Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer just stood there looking confused. But there's a bit where, <laughs> where Frankie Howard starts miming with Sergeant Peppers. And then there's a little instrumental break and he carries on miming it because he thinks it's coming. And then everyone sort of turns to the side to do their weird little dance routine 
And Frankie Howard doesn't. He just carries on miming, and there's no, there's, and I'm like, you left that in. You, you <laughs> that is the last frame of Frankie Howard's film career. Him <laughs> not miming or knowing the dance routine yeah. to the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band finale. That is something kind of tragic about that. Frankie Howard, a, a great British comedy legend. The last time you ever saw him on a cinema screen is him coming in early but not knowing the dance moves it's really really bad but it's also really funny as well it's well, really funny not only was it his last screen role and he it's not as if he passed away you know a few months or a year or so later he passed away 14 years i, I was it 14 years i thought it was yeah, 12 92. years but it was it was a long time later um and um it was actually his first and last role in an american film um and when you see it it's kind of like i mean again it, it's clear it's clear that they i mean how again how they went from oliver reed to frankie howard i will never know but it's clear that they got frankie howard in they went oh okay we can make him a frankie howard-esque uh, character and all they did was ask him to do his frankie howard shtick you know the the the, the sort of thing mm. you've seen loads of times in carry on or um uh a funny uh, thing happened on uh, pompeii yeah that's it um i can't remember if it was in funny thing happened away to the forum or, or but stuff like that you know and um but it's just it's just so wildly crass and inappropriate for this film it's a really weird what the fuck moment um we've mentioned steve martin doing maxwell silverhammer a little bit already but his actual scene in the film is completely and utterly bonkers he plays i think he's playing a plastic surgeon uh and has yeah. a a literal tiny silver hammer which he um just sort of bonks people on the head with and then this sort of electricity comes out and I, I don't know what the hell is going on with it uh, the purpose of him being in the film he has one of these musical instruments why he has it i don't know uh but he is hamming, <laughs> that is never explained it's never explained he's <laughs> hamming it up to a ridiculous degree oh my god he's like tony <coughs> montana at the end of scarface <laughs> doing panto right <laughs> <It> is <laughs> like i have never seen a human being more clearly just absolutely stoned off of their bonds mm. than steve martin who must have had a skip full of cocaine 30 seconds yeah. before they took it he I is say, like, i don't think he's, he's stoned <laughs> he's he's no, definitely on up his eyes are the size of basketballs <laughs> his body he looks like some kind of he looks like some kind of like minotaur that's been shaved and, <laughs> and, put, and put in scrubs <laughs> just wandering around like <laughs> he looks like uh, <laughs> I mean, he's move, making hand movements that makes it look like he thinks he's got like branches coming out of the end of his fingers <laughs> it is so far over the top i can't even believe it he's like he's like he makes rick mail in blackadder look like the most the smallest most naturalistic performance you can possibly imagine it <laughs> well, is as, so, as um uh, what's his uh, name as captain flashheart yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have never, I've, I've, in a film of absolutely maddeningly over the top excessive nonsense, Steve Martin is the most excessive nonsensical scene in the whole thing. I think you can get that clip on YouTube. We might put that up. Yeah, um, we'll do. That. Uh, I, 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 I think I we'll mean, put I'm, a few up. We'll put a few up for people. You, um, you really do have to see this. I mean, Steve I genuinely think you have. To, for as bad as it is, you have to see this. 
there's been some things on broken records that we've reviewed which we sort of recommended that people do check out because there's a certain sort of charm to them um the dd ramon album for example or or mm-hmm. william i mean william shatner's the transformed man yeah. just has to be heard to be believed this is very transformed man-esque um i think it's uh <laughs> i mean there there are certain there are things about the transformed man which are eyebrow raising and you know quite embarrassing but there's stuff about this especially when you put it in the context of the film where you go i can't believe they even allowed this to happen and unlike i mean i don't think william shatner has tried to erase the transformed man i don't I don't think he's tried to pretend that it doesn't exist or anything like that. Whereas nice. the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton and people involved with this have tried to do that with this. And I can see why. Uh, I, I totally, totally get it. Um, very quickly, before we uh, before we go into um, where we should put it on the ranking, and unless you have anything else to say, is there anything on I here do. that you do like? Uh, I don't mind, like... <laughs> When I don't see him dancing, I quite like Get Back. I mm-hmm. think A Day in the Life is too bad. It's too good a song to ruin. Although, you know, that big, it kind of sums up how it's not as good when that big chord, that famous chord at the end of the day in life, sums up this really with a pity little plink on some keys at the end of their version. Mm. It sounds like, you know, the, the original sounds like God clapping his hands, where the version on this album just sounds like hooks from Police Academy farting. And <laughs> also, why on why on earth would you? Like, I see what you're saying, but for me, that it, it's it's not as bad as it could be. But why on earth would you ever go to that version of a day in the life when you've got the original? You know, no, of course not. No, I think you know they said Earth, Wind, and Fire do all right. We've got to get you into my life. I think that's not terrible that's not I mean, that's one of the few songs that i think you know aerosmith doing come together is decent enough as well i was gonna say uh, uh, the the cover of of come together by aerosmith i mean come together is actually one of my favorite beatles songs but i think i think aerosmith do a really good job of it particularly steven tyler he adds a like it's it's probably the only song that i would actually go back to out of the Oh my goodness, there's something like 24 songs on this soundtrack. That's another thing we haven't mentioned. It's 83 minutes and 8 seconds, this fucking soundtrack. Um, it's really fucking long. Um, but, um, the film's I- an hour and 50 minutes as well. <laughs> yeah, uh... yeah, and you've watched it twice. Um, no, I, I actually thought, I mean, I would never say uh, it was better than the original, but I thought Aerosmith's version of Come Together whilst being a relatively straight cover it just added a hint of aerosmith to it which i actually really liked and i thought it suited them really really well um but that's the only song i i have anything genuinely positive to say there's there's other ones yeah Yeah, the billy breston get back is 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 okay again i'd still i'd never listened to it over i think i think billy preston's get back is the only song which has those kind of soul funk disco elements that actually works Mm. you know because if you wanted to sum up this album in a sentence it's the beatles go disco yeah by, by the Bee Gees, you know basically um which sounds like such a dreadful idea um and it is uh it's an awful awful idea um but yeah i thought it was worth mentioning at least that like there are a couple of songs on here that are okay but the majority of it is just absolutely 
dreadful. There's actually 24 I mean, so- songs on yeah, here. Yeah, e- even when those things that are all right are all right, it's quickly followed by fucking Something. George Burns, who's an yeah. old man, yeah. like, doing dig in a hole and he's just like are you what why or, would you make this poor old bastard do that i mean the other thing that we should say mr kite yeah yeah <laughs> why um the other thing we haven't mentioned i think we should do is the context of 1978 as well mm-hmm. we're talking about punk rock happening mm. in 1978 and the music industry and the press at that time was absolutely falling over itself to acclaim punk rock road to ruin by the ramones came out given enough rope by the clash came out germ free adolescent spectre specs came out scream by Susie and the banshees came out that was the thing punk rock which went out of its way to go we are going to kill the idols of the past and i guess the beatles were one of those things that people would have thought of as an idol of the past now a disco remake remake of beatles songs in stuff like the NME and the Melody Maker and the Sounds and Rolling Stones stuff, that would have been the least cool thing you could have done for sort of tastemakers at the time. And secondly, when you think that, like you said, Grease came out that year, mm-hmm. and while the cool kids who were, you know, setting the trends were obsessed with punk rock and bringing down the establishment, the basic pop fan who was well in on disco by now, but they only buy one or two albums a year and they bought Grease. Do you know what I mean? If they're going to buy something, they're going to buy Grease. You're not going to buy a bunch of songs that you've already got from 10 years ago that they already had, or you're going to give it like a wella, 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 tell me more, tell me, that they already knew. Do you know what I mean? And, they, and it was a massive choice. And I think, you know, everyone jumped on that disco thing that year. Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart came out that year. YMCA came out that year. Heart of Glass by Blondie came out that year. Blame It on the Boogie by the Jacksons came out that year. Le Freak by Chic came out that year. So I think the combination of other people doing this to a far higher standard and that a great number of people hated it combined with the fact that it is really bad and the film is an absolute turkey has to kind of contributed to this perfect storm of shite do you know what i mean <laughs> and storm it, of shite. there we are it's yeah. an absolute perfect storm of shit right but what's what what is kind of saving it a bit for me when we come to put it where it's, where we're going to put it is it starts with such incredible material and there are some talented artists on here and it's just an incredibly cynical stupid idiotic thing i, I mean when we come to where we put it <laughs> i mean I really don't know because it's so cynical and it's so terrible. And, but yet there are so many things about it that kind of redeem it for me. <laughs> I don't know where to put it. It's really bad. But then it's also really just brilliant as well. Well, there's an enjoyable quality to it um, from the sense. Oh, from the se- Because like. As I say, The Room, Tommy Wiseau and Howard the Duck and The Transformed Man by William Shatner and Standing in the Spotlight by D.D. King. There's something about it which it wasn't wasn't a chore listening to this album. Even though it's 84 odd minutes, I was so astonished. I was so astonished so many times. My my jaw dropped to the floor so many times that it didn't feel like it was a really, 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 really long record because I was just constantly stunned by what ha- what was happening in front of my Here, ears. Here's the weird thing about it: when I listened to the soundtrack, I was like, "God, this isn't very good." Mm. But then when I watched the film. I, I enjoyed watching the film more than I enjoyed listening to the soundtrack 
but i think watching the film makes the songs worse and it's a really weird thing that i prefer the film even though i think it shows up how terrible the songs are whereas you just put the soundtrack on you go sometimes you go god this is really quite bad but like stuff like you don't get billy preston or steve martin like gritting his teeth <laughs> Do you know what I mean? like, steve martin rubbing his gums <laughs> you, know what I mean? you don't get that where you're like what are you doing and it kind See- of makes everything worse but also better at the same time well, well weirdly i kind of i actually had a bit slightly the opposite reaction because once i'd seen the film i was like well at least i understand now why for example that terrible vocoder bit is over the top of um oh whatever song whatever songs it's over the top yeah it, it may it may mean, oh, man. <laughs> that's it yeah um yeah at least i was like okay I mean, it's still a terrible idea, but now I at least have context for why that vocoder sound has been used over mm. me, Mr. Mustard, or uh, she's leaving home, or whatever. Um, I mean, it, but it didn't make me like it. Um, I, I just, I, I think, as I said, you know, I, I, I think this film is astonishing, and I think it's extraordinary but for all the wrong reasons uh, and uh, in in the classical sense of the of the words astonishing and extraordinary as opposed to the more <laughs> the sense that we use them in today um i guess we are uh i mean william shatner the transport man and dd king standing in the spotlight are at number 22 and 23 of our list right mm-hmm. so it is it's sort of tempting to <laughs> to put it in at number 21 but i think like shatner and dd king at least they were like you know i mean the shatner album has some dreadful covers on it dd king god bless him it's you know he might like hip-hop but he's not very good at doing it he's certainly not very good at rapping i think the having the uh chutzpah to just take songs by the beatles and put that disco stuff over them i think it deserves to be drubbed even more it deserves a higher placing in the in the ranking for that alone and the film as well i think the combination of those two things i don't think we should put it with shatner and dd king even though it has that enjoyable quality to it and that cult status around it i think it should go higher in even though it made me laugh more i think the last time i really laughed at an album like this was richard ashcroft's united nations of sound Mm. now we have a bunch of stuff from kind of bob dylan to lauren hill which you go this is flawed but ultimately not that bad you've got a couple of things where you're like bless them dd king and william shatner you've got a bunch of quite boring stuff from sort of van halen three up until theory of the dead man where you're just like this is just boring and uh, uneventful and pointless and then you've got stuff like queen and paul rogers and richard ashcroft which are hilarious because they're so misguided and embarrassing and drug-fueled idiocy you then get to the point with stuff like eogan six feet under towers of london Corey feldman blood the dance for method mayhem uncle cracker broken side we like that is bad and i that made me really upset listening to that Of all the ones that we have from kind of... So I think we can go... It's going to be better than everything from Eogan upward, right? So from Eogan to Broken Side. I'm tempted to put it as the worst of the folly. Uh, So between Eogan and Richard Ashcroft. 
because Richard Ashcroft, United Nations of Sound, which is a mad record, a maddeningly mm. stupid, hilarious record, which had me like unable to speak when we came to yeah. review it because yeah, it was yeah. so funny. But this is funnier. Yeah, and I sillier think it is. And stupider <clears throat> and just worse in every way. As much as I kind of love it, it is worse. <laughs> and then you get to, when you get to Eorg and you're like, okay, this joke's not even funny anymore. Mm, mm. So that would be my suggestion. That's not a bad shout. I have to admit, I was kind of, I was kind of going ever so slightly the the other way. So the other two, um, so the two that we have there that we're kind of comparing it with, Richard Ashcross, United Nations of Sound, which is at number nine, and Queen and Paul Rogers, The Cosmos Rocks, at number ten. I was sort of thinking of slotting it between Queen and Paul Rogers and Louis the oh, was it sixteenth? Fourteenth. Fourteenth. Sorry, with Slick Dogs and Ponies. Do you really think that the? I mean, as bad as the Cosmos Rocks and United Nations of Sound are, mm. they aren't astronomical. I mean, I, I no, I think you, I think you've argued it these. quite well. Yeah, I think I you've prefer, argued it quite well. I prefer this to both of these, but at the same time, it is undoubtedly just the sheer nerve of these people. Yeah, the sheer nerve. I mean, the sheer nerve of Richard Ashcroft and, and Queen and Paul Rogers as well. But the absolute nerve, the amount of people, the amount of drugs, the amount of money spent, the amount of idiocy the point that nobody at any point seemed to go even when they think they thought they should have gone guys are we really doing the right thing here yeah no one flagged it up enough to go we just we can't do this we can't do this (laughs) we can't do this to a day in the life we can't do this to lucy in the sky with diamonds we're talking we're talking about lucy we can't do it but they did anyway and they have to really they have as much as i find it hilarious they kind of need to be punished for it yeah. And I think for that they should probably get into the top ten. No, you've ar- you've argued that very well. I think you're right. I think uh, yeah, number nine between Jorgen Quigg and uh, Richard Ashcroft is absolutely the right right placing. So there it goes into <laughs> uh, into the list of the broken records. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the soundtrack to the film, which you you just i mean you you have to watch it you have to you just you just have to watch it um but anyway we've got another one that we're going to be doing next week renfrey i've got my hand in the hat the hat full around. of shit yes the hat full of shit I've i'm missed rummaging it. around as we speak and i have pulled out black flag what the by black flag so punk rock legends black flag um with one of their less impressive efforts we will be talking about that next week thank you very much for listening hope you've enjoyed this you know i guess it's a slightly longer version of broken records Mm. um since we've got a bit more time slightly longer but still Mm. you know uh, this would have been long whatever i mean i still don't feel like we've really properly summed up the madness of this record i feel like there's a lot that we've missed to be honest but there's so much to talk about it's just we've done our best we 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 will keep an eye on our social media's uh channels and we will put lots of this <laughs> up because fuck me mm. anyway see you later Renfrey. thanks very much you mean old oh you're a mean old man <laughs>